0: Welcome to the Sexual Mindfulness Project Podcast, where we talk about creating an intentional relationship and how to find joy in slowing down, letting go of judgment, and connecting more deeply with your partner. Well, today I'm here with Dr. Alexandra Stockwell, and she is not only a medical doctor, but she's also an intimacy coach. And hopefully, she'll share a little bit with us about that journey. She's also a mother and a wife. And so, all of these labels might help you identify with her or feel like you know her a little better. But truthfully during our discussion, I think we will really come to understand some wisdom that Alexandra will bestow upon us. I want to share just one little commonality that we have. She met her husband the first week, is that right? The first week of medical school. And uh, I met my husband the first week of law school. And we went through law school together. And then I too made kind of a career change and got my PhD in human development. Alexandra also made a bit of a career change, and we hope to hear a little bit more about that. Is your husband
1: still practicing law?
0: He is. He stayed in it.
1: Okay, and my husband is still practicing medicine. I remember when you initially reached out to invite me about your law degree, but I'd forgotten that this morning, and I love hearing that. I think it's a beautiful journey and not too many people on the path because people who go into a career, which requires so much training and devotion and discipline and commitment to then choose something else after completing it is a whole journey of courage and alignment and authenticity and soul searching. So I know we're not talking about that transition in your life right now, but we're instantly soul sisters on that part of the journey.
0: And truthfully, I mean, I like, I connect with the word that you said earlier, that it really is an intentional choice that something, and this is what we're talking about every single one of these podcasts, really, is this idea of being more intentional in your life and really paying attention to what's going on internally, whether that's physically or emotionally, and then making some intentional choices to align
1: Yes, I completely agree and love how simply you've articulated something that is so multidimensional and complex. Oh, and probably (laughs)
0: for you, if you're anything like me, it took years to figure that out.
1: (laughs) Yes, and years for that to be such a potent statement as well.
0: Yes. Well, I'm so happy that we get to visit. I wanted to start off with a couple of questions, really just kind of opening up a little bit of space for you to tell us about how you came to be where you are.
1: Great. You know, I get asked this question often, but with that opening and the kinship and knowing the interest of your audience... I'm going to answer that question differently than I ever have before. I'm sure I've been interviewed over 200 times on podcasts, but this is my answer uniquely for you. Right. So part of it isn't unique, but... My parents divorced when I was nine years old. My husband's parents divorced when he was six years old. And going into our marriage, on the one hand, I felt really excited, of course, and in love and all of the things that one would presume. And I also had a track in my head just assuming that, of course, we would get divorced because I couldn't picture Anything else. I mean, my grandparents were married a long time, but when I looked around, I just didn't see too many people who really understood how to have a really fulfilling marriage. I knew marriages which lasted, which involved compromise of some essential aspects of personality and soul and passion, but to really be self expressed and authentic. And in a long lasting, passionate marriage, I didn't see that and not in my personal life or celebrities or anything. So I really had this question, how exactly does that work if it's possible? That's just point number one. Mm -hmm. When I left clinical medicine initially on a sabbatical, one of the main motivators, which I really didn't have the courage to express them, but it's the truth, is that I felt like I prioritized my patience over my family and my family over myself. And while that was fine, there weren't any problems being caused. I knew that that was not a long-term solution, that if nothing else, I'd be training my children to do the same and that I couldn't bear, even if I could bear living that way.
0: myself.
1: And so part of going on sabbatical, I mean, as you know, with your career, and I can tell you, anyone listening should know too, you know, to be a physician and married. And at the time we had three children and running a household and all the things like time management was not my issue. It's not that I couldn't fit things in. It had to do with Mindset and mindfulness, I'll even say. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't figure it out. And actually, it was very funny because once I started my sabbatical, 3 months later i found myself volunteering at my older children's school and i oversaw this major project which involved writing a 40 page report and overseeing 10 volunteers <laughs> and it was extremely time consuming and it was all volunteer and the point is that i had recreated the yeah. exact same dynamic which yes. honestly was devastating But it also was affirming in how, yes, it was worthwhile for me to step away from clinical medicine so that I could really reorganize my inner matrix so that things were in the right order according to what I really valued. So that's another, I'm laying out like a bunch of puzzle pieces here. Right. So when I stepped away from clinical medicine and took my sabbatical, I gave myself permission to do things just because I felt like it, which was a totally novel experience because even going on vacation, I did it with a purpose and in order to create a positive family experience or whatever, but not just because I felt like it. It still came from a logical, analytical part of me. So I took a drawing class. I sat by the river. And anyway, one thing led to another. That's the beauty in doing things just because you feel like it. There's like a breadcrumb trail that hopefully doesn't lead to Hansel and Gretel's witch, but it leads to other <laughs> other things. And so I ended up at the School of Womanly Arts in New York City, which is just what it sounds like. It's not active anymore. But I remember being in a room with 250 women And the leader of this event I was at, this beautiful dynamic woman said, who here learned the anatomical terms for your genitals? Who here learned the word vagina? When you were a child and, you know, some number of people raised their hand and vulva. And then all these other words. And there were all these words that I'd never heard of, like coochie and of course some crass ones, but also like made up ones from a Russian grandmother or a Nigerian (laughs) auntie who, you know, like, or down there, there just were all these different words that were even honestly, the word, the word vagina is often not accurate for what's being referred to. It's more often- But in any case, it was only, I don't remember the percentages, but it was some percentage that had learned some anatomically accurate terms. Others who had these euphemisms, mostly like the terms used did not convey womanliness, more like your flower, for example, which there's something I suppose in referring to a four-year-old girl's flower, but it's not a flower that pushes a baby through it's it's a it's like a whole root system if we're going to talk about (laughs) well i was going to just
0: yeah i was going to say as far as my students most of the most of the terms that they report having grown up with are really vague, like flower, like it doesn't tell you anything. And it's not really accurate. It doesn't give me knowledge, you know,
1: exactly. And let me just say my father had a PhD in physics, my mother, um, she didn't end up getting her PhD, but she did all of the coursework for a PhD in philosophy. My both of my grandmothers went to college at a time when all women didn't go to that wasn't presumed. What yeah. I mean to say is that I have a lot of Ivy League educated relatives, ancestors, and even in this context of highly educated family, I was born in 1968 and I grew up without any terminology. Like I was, I raised my hand as a woman in the room who had grown up not learning anything. And that is not something yeah. that ever impacted me before that moment, but suddenly, I was actually not suddenly, it was more like a simmer that slowly came to a boil, it didn't hit me all at once what that means. Because if you think of, you know, babies where we have, we touch our nose and touch their nose, and you know, learn nose and mouth and eyes and ears, and there's an important part of consciousness that is taught through understanding the parts of our body. And I didn't have any of that. Uh Right some of the most important parts of my body. So this is all continuing the patchwork. I'll just say a few more things, which is that I really didn't have a conversation about sex with my mother until I'd already given birth to two children. And and my mother (laughs) wasn't a prude. I really think it had to do with her ideas about not putting her own issues in my head.
0: Like there's some real value to that.
1: I actually think that it was very loving. It She's someone who probably had our bodies ourselves. Like this is not, she was not some hick or, you know, she wasn't uncomfortable with anatomical terms. She was with me, but really it's because my grandmother, her mother was very flirtatious and flamboyant. And she got married in 1939. She was a woman ahead of her generation, but I think she was very expressive of her own sexuality. And it was overwhelming for my mother as a little girl. Mm -hmm. and so she wanted to spare me that and went too far in the other direction yeah and it actually was kind of an amazing experience for her if I can go ahead and talk about something a little personal and generational but my grandmother had extremely intense menstrual cramps and she used to talk about like my mother knew when she had menstrual cramps and how intense it was yeah and then when my mother had intense menstrual cramps she always thought that maybe it was psychological because she'd heard her mother talk this way. And so she never told me a word about it. And then I used to miss a day of school most months in 11th and 12th grade because it was intense for me and i'm guessing that that my mother didn't ever discuss it with me but that that would have had her change her orientation to her own experience because it wasn't only psychological because she never gave me that right. information. So anyway, what i what i really want to say is that as every human being does, there are these various formative definitive moments that essentially pointed me in the direction of how unaware i was and simultaneously the rather profound desire I felt to know more. And actually, I did a very in-depth, remarkable sexuality training for my own sake and the sake of my marriage, which happened to double as a coach training. But I, I didn't even know what a coach was at that time. And it's just because I'm curious and educational models fascinate me that I went to the teaching lab for those who were on the coaching track, which was really just a very easy choice. It didn't cost any more money or anything. And I just went, I thought, well, let me just check out the lab. yeah. And I just knew right away I'd come home. that so much of what I wanted to give as a medical doctor. I was going to be able to give in the context of relationship and intimacy coaching. So that's yeah. some of how I arrive in this conversation.
0: I like that. I'm struck as I listen to you, I'm struck by the idea that you who came from a very educated background, Uh, not only uh, the people that you grew up with, your parents, your grandparents, um, but yourself and uh, certainly your husband. And so you, you come from this, it's kind of the water you swim in is very informed, very educated people. And yet even you felt like you were in a vacuum as far as really understanding your own sexuality, uh, your genitals, and uh, you know, and how that relates to the your life, your relationship, and um, and so I think that that's really notable for people who maybe grew up in a in a less open, less educated environment. Of course, this is something we will likely crave a little more information on because our society in general is fairly quiet about this at best, or maybe giving us misinformation and sometimes shaming in many cases. And so this is really, I think, important for listeners to realize this is a pretty ubiquitous problem.
1: Yes. And there's another element, which I think is super important because I've shared some of the context in terms of my familial context with not being as educated as I would have wished. Now I really have no regrets because I've loved learning it the way I've learned, but mm. at the time I would have. And that's one thing. But then yes, going to medical school, I want to be really careful. There's so much, honestly, insulting and misunderstanding of physicians that is happening right now. And so I want to I wanna be more precise about that aspect of what was missing and what was available. So as a physician, I certainly learned the anatomy correctly and I learned About physiological function. I did pelvic exams so that also was a very significant part of my personal education to have access in an appropriate professional manner to see so many different women's vulvas and have my hand in their pelvis as part of responsible medicine was also very educational for me because one of the things that happens is women often wonder, am I normal? And I really was privileged to be in a position personally to see what a massive range normal actually is. And same with sensation. So I did have in its own way, also because I was paying close attention and I cared, a very rich education in terms of sexuality in medicine. However, when it comes to evidence-based, research and anatomical study, you probably know that so much of anatomical research is done on cadavers and evidence-based studies typically need a blind case controlled in other words there have to be people who don't know what's happening in order to really assess if the thing being assessed is having an impact and all of those typical scenarios which are highly valued I'm not knocking any of those particular principles they really are not well suited for research when it comes to sexuality and I think one of the most important things that I learned, not in my family and not in my medical training, although it's coming slowly into mainstream medicine, but very slowly, if there are many doctors listening, they won't be familiar with what I'm saying, but some will, It's really the fundamental misunderstanding about orgasm, because when physicians and most scientists speak about orgasm, they're really talking about male orgasm and the patterns of, now men can orgasm in other ways as well, but I'm just going to call it male orgasm as represented by Masters and Johnson, which involves the familiar, well, to those of us for whom it's familiar, so let me describe it, the graph where there's foreplay and I'll say the sexual energy, the erotic energy, rises and rises and rises. And then it comes to a peak and then there's ejaculation and then it rapidly drops. And then there's the refractory period, which is the word used to describe when a man can't have another erection because everything needs to calm down and rest. And so often, It's thought that women orgasm in the same way. And when they don't, there's something wrong. And that just is not the reality of female orgasm. It's a much more circuitous path. It can be less dramatic. It can be, it can rise and it can ebb and flow and ebb and flow and get stronger and stronger and stronger. And then there can be something explosive. It can just be a quickie and just rise right away without any foreplay. You can have extended building and building and then gradually just slowly tapering off. There's an infinite number of graphs to represent female orgasm and a lot of sexual problems that committed couples have when it comes to sexuality, when they're not related to actual anatomical or physiological dysfunction, in other words, something that a doctor can help with, one of the main contributors in my estimation, and I'm not speaking as a sexuality researcher, I'm speaking much more anecdotally, one of the main contributors is a lack of understanding a female orgasm, which becomes very challenging in heteronormative marriages when the woman doesn't understand it, and also very challenging when the man doesn't understand it because he thinks he's not a skillful enough lover, he thinks she's broken, he thinks he'll never be able to bring her pleasure. She thinks she can't satisfy him. She thinks there's something wrong with her. Why can't? And the number of women who feel like there's something wrong with them because it's too long for them to be able to orgasm really, a good number of those could just be completely resolved if they understood the nature and what the actual graph can look like when it comes to female orgasm, all the way to the point where there are women who are having juicy, erotic experiences, which, has their muscles contracting in a way that meets the definition of orgasm, who believe they've never had an orgasm because they haven't had something equivalent to what's represented in the Masters and Johnson graph with the ejaculation and then the refractory period. And really, female orgasm is so varied and delicious and nuanced and mysterious and blatant and (laughs) unpredictable. Yeah. And when you have in mind that it's supposed to look like slower and then faster and faster and faster and then ejaculation and then rest, that really limits the pleasure available and brings in a lot of limiting beliefs and self-identities that aren't true.
0: In previous podcasts, I've talked about this research, but you may be interested in this research that um, myself and a couple of other colleagues just, well, we published in Journal of Sexual Medicine about a year and a half ago, and then in Journal of Sex Research, exactly what you're talking about, that men and women's sexual arousal patterns, first of all, are different from each other. And what's so interesting in our research is we found a little variation in men, that men also were different from each other. Yes, yes, for sure, yes. But for women, we found vast range of sexual response um, patterns. And so women, not only should we not be comparing ourselves to men, we should not even be comparing ourselves to other women. And really learning to embrace and understand your own sexual arousal pattern is so critical. And in fact, one interesting little thing that we were able to confirm that earlier researchers had hinted at was that for some individuals, desire actually came after arousal. So we think, you know, according to Masters and Johnsons, we're all supposed to feel desire, heightened arousal, climax, and then resolution. That's not how it goes for everybody. And in fact, I love how you were just describing this variety of how women may feel orgasm. There may be you know kind of this slow build it may be really fast or there may be this slow build to lots of peaks you know multiple orgasms or just kind of a sensation of overall pleasure and
1: and it's not that i feel like we should emphasize it's not that each woman has her particular flavor any given woman can have a variety of the flavors you've just said. Exactly, exactly. I also love that you've pointed this out. I didn't know it in the way you're saying it about desire can come after arousal. I'm familiar with this in terms of intrinsic desire and responsive desire. Are those terms that... Yes, yes. I'll just say in case there's somebody listening who hasn't heard before that intrinsic desire would follow what you're saying with Masters and Johnson, that desire comes first and then arousal it's like you just want to have sex and in fact many partners who end up being referred to as the low desire partner don't necessarily have lower desire they just have responsive desire which means instead of intrinsic desire just the same way you get hungry you want to have sex it just comes regularly Instead, it's when whatever it is that speaks to you. Maybe the candles are lit. Maybe you get a massage. Maybe you've crossed everything off Hi. your to do list. <laughs> like whatever it is that allows you to experience something in the environment that you are responding to. And I'll say, This is very important for me personally because I work hard and at the end of the day, I'm full with my various thoughts and the things that I'm working on in my projects and my children and my clients and the new program I'm going to do in the next episode of my podcast called the Intimate Marriage Podcast. I'm very full up at the end of the day with where my attention has been and Happily, my husband knows not to initiate sex per se, some days not even to ask me about it, but to just start massaging my back in a non-sexual way. And basically for me, that's an invitation back into my body and then once i'm there we're often pretty good to go
0: who knows right yes but these are
1: (laughs) these are things that have different seasons like different times of life someone's going to have more responsive desire versus intrinsic desire and actually i know one of the things you wanted to talk about with me is growth in the context of sexuality intimacy and particularly committed relationships and i think that this is an area where If you think you have it figured out or you found something that works and you're going to stick with it until your dying days, that really doesn't work. It's a little bit like parenting. My husband used to just be so astonished with our older children where he would just get in the groove and know how to successfully interact with the two-year-old. And then they would be in a new developmental stage where that didn't make sense anymore and they needed more boundaries or whatever it was. And that's certainly true in the teenage years that the way to respond to broken rule or something when the child's 12 is not the way to respond when the child's 16 or 20 and that's just an example that i think people can identify with i'm not at all talking about the parent child dynamic but that actually i'll put it this way so often we celebrate human development when it comes to crawling and walking and talking and learning to read and a first sleepover and whatever religious milestone is met and and maybe marriage But for me, for my children, my husband and me, I am not one iota less fascinated. In our ongoing development, I'm 53. And I would not say that in the past year, I have less development than I had when I was 15 to 16, let's say. I mean, the first three years of life, that's an extraordinary amount of development. But if we we taper off the amount of development... Well, at a minimum, our sex lives suffer. And it's just not as dramatic. It's much more nuanced and hidden, but the development is definitely happening each day, each thought, each feeling. How do I want to respond to that?
0: Yeah, I love that. I really like your ideas of growth and for us to not shy away from it, in fact, embrace it and kind of welcome this shift in our perspective or what our goals are or what we think we may experience in our relationship. I love that you bring up this comparison between a 15 and 16-year-old's development and a 52 to a 53-year-old, truthfully. I think that some of the ways we are developing, maybe we're not getting physically stronger or taller or, you know, whatever, or mastering physical skills, we're kind of Going deeper, though, and understanding emotional nuance and relational nuance and social nuance. So there's so many ways for us to develop. And I think as we get older, we just have a little room to go deeper in that development.
1: Yeah, I really agree with that. And there are all kinds of things we could say about doing that as an individual. And I think it's particularly fascinating to think about how to do that in the context of a marriage, because it doesn't mean changing your address on a regular basis, although it can. It doesn't mean, I don't know what, redecorating the house. Like, I'm just thinking of ways that one could experience change. But there are a number of ways of doing this First of all, to just be curious, to be genuinely curious about your partner and yourself and ask open-ended questions. That's one way that growth can really happen in a relationship. In fact, I enjoy saying that if you think back to the beginning of a relationship, the unbelievably wonderful feeling of feeling in love, it is filled with questions like, Mm -hmm. where is that scar from? And what did you want to be when you grew up? And what was your favorite book? And What is your favorite psalm? And we just have all of these questions. And then when we get comfortable with our partner, there is something beautiful about that comfort and companionship and knowing what your spouse likes for dinner. Like that's beautiful that you don't have to ask. Like, I don't want to knock that. But if you let go of that interest, you're basically missing out on the growth, which is definitely happening in your partner. And in yourself, it's like you, you remove that from the marriage if you don't keep asking and the growth that I'm talking about, you can access it by asking, you know, what do you daydream about these days or what music and podcasts are you listening to when you commute or what was the most meaningful part of last week for you? Right? Or are you nervous about anything in the week ahead questions that there's no way you could know the answer to unless you ask, unless if there's some crisis going on, so you know what the answer will be about what your spouse is nervous about. Just adjust the question to understand something that you don't know. And of course, it only makes sense to ask questions that you actually are interested in the answers to, but this is one way to nurture growth in a relationship.
0: I love that. Why do you think that so many of us are afraid of growth? right? We like kind of shy away from that. We don't create that space of discovery, like, like you just beautifully described. Instead, we shy away from it and worry about maybe the consequences of growth.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful question. And there are so many different answers. One answer is that at the beginning of a committed relationship, it takes a lot to navigate things and figure out how we are going to do things and how we're going to navigate this or that. And so the growth is inevitable there. And then it can feel calmer and gratifying when things are figured out and you have your routines in terms of how you communicate and how you make your decisions and what you communicate about and what you don't communicate about. It is nice to to just take a breath and enjoy that solidity. But many couples enjoy that solidity far too long to their own detriment. So then there are a few reasons as to why that is. One is that it can feel like a risk to rock the boat once it's been established. Like for example, to share a new sexual desire. That for so many men and women can feel like It's not worth the risk, but if you decide it's not worth the risk that he or she won't respond well, that's a kind of intense example, but it can come up even with like wanting a new kind of car. If you've, if you've always bought Toyotas and now you want to buy a Honda, like (laughs) there are all kinds of things that can cause this. And I think one of the other contributing factors is that we've all been taught that the key to a great relationship is compromise and that's wrong. I mean, (laughs) compromise Will go very far in creating a bland, comfortable companionship. And for many people, that's good enough. If that's good enough, then let it be. But it definitely does not contribute to long lasting passion. Because with compromise, we're withholding aspects of ourselves, our thoughts and our feelings in order to make our partner comfortable. And so the name of my book is Uncompromising Intimacy. I really advocate to be uncompromising But I don't mean exacting and you always get your own way and so you dominate insofar as compromising means holding back so your partner's comfortable. Being uncompromising means learning how to express yourself in a way that your partner can hear and invite your partner to do the same. And then once both of you have all the information, you can be so much more creative with solutions. And maybe you don't get your own way but it feels completely different not to have felt like you couldn't bring this into the marriage. And more often than not, you should both be getting more of what you want.
0: Yeah, I really like how you've just described that. I mean, really talking about being truthfully authentic, really talking about what your fears, your desires are, your creativity your goals that you might like to explore. As you share that, sure, there's a risk. And maybe not all of it is possible like you're talking about, but you're going to feel like you've really opened up who you are to be known by your partner, to let them see who you truthfully are. And hopefully it's received well and they reciprocate, right? They share who they are. And then in that environment, people are so much more likely to be able to find real solutions that maintain that passion even if not everything is possible.
1: Completely. And in fact, really, the majority of my work is teaching couples how to communicate in this way mm-hmm. that I describe as uncompromising intimacy, because it's one thing to want it. And then it is a whole skill set, which isn't available at large. And so, yeah. Um, the, it's it's interesting.
0: Like- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I just was going to say two things. One is that having a fantastic relationship in the way we're talking about, it's a learnable skill. It's not that either you're the type of person who has it or you're the type of person who doesn't have it. It is a learnable skill if you prioritize learning it, which is why I teach it to people. And then the other thing I was going to say is that especially in the context of sexuality, that if in a long-lasting relationship, you want to have passion and fulfillment and essentially share your body and your soul with someone, open your legs to invite them in. It's not possible in a long-lasting relationship to be able to be that way in the bedroom. If out of the bedroom, you're essentially leaving aspects of yourself outside the marriage human beings don't have a switch that we can that's flip right. when we get into the bedroom to be expressed and fully present and mindful and authentic if we've been going through our day with a very different mode even if it's pleasant and polite yeah,
0: but still shut down and, exactly. and not truthfully open and you know that's why so much of the research says what's going to make a great sex life well having a great relationship being a really generous person and having a generous partner. And as you were talking um, about, you know, maybe we just accept the good enough sort of Mm -hmm,
1: relationship
0: mm -hmm. and sexual life. And I always ask myself, at what cost? At what cost are we not taking risks, not showing our true self? What ends up happening? We know from research and certainly from people that we visit with is that your relationship becomes monotonous and boring and simply unsatisfying. You may still stay together, right? You may still truthfully love this person, but you haven't learned how to really give yourself over to your relationship, to your sexuality, to your partner. Um, And that takes a lot of courage
1: it takes courage, it takes devotion, it takes evolving self-worth, and
0: and some skill, like you just talked about.
1: Skills, yes, which are learnable. I teach them, you teach your version of them, yeah. and a willingness to mess up and be awkward, and just laugh it off and move on to the next thing. In fact, I find it helpful to distinguish the four different types of relationships that there are. And actually, I can give you the link for the show notes. I have a free download where I
0: go into this more, if anyone's
1: interested. I would love
0: that. We would love to share that with our listeners.
1: Okay. Well, there are the four types of relationships. There's the toxic relationship, which I define as one where one or both people are feeling anger and fear as the dominant emotions in the toxic relationship. That's how I define it. And then, uh, sorry, the termination relationship where one or both people have already given up on the relationship and I only found this statistic once, I don't know if it's been replicated, but somebody showed that there were 24% of couples with children fully intend to get divorced once the children are out of the house. Sometimes when the children are young, middle school, high school, it can be a long time until the children are out of the house, but... There's a termination relationship, and in that scenario, even if that decision hasn't been made or communicated to the spouse, in a termination relationship, one or both people are really looking for fulfillment and relational connection with others. I don't mean having affairs necessarily, but I just mean it's spending time with girlfriends that a woman's going to turn to to really fill up her soul, and I'm all for spending time with girlfriends, but... In a termination relationship, the marriage itself is really demoted in terms of importance and contribution other than a structure for raising children. And then there's the toleration relationship. And I think we have an epidemic of toleration relationships where compromise is predominant, where people stay together, but they are tolerating a lot or a little because they don't feel clear or courageous enough to share more authentically in the way that we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. And then in my book, I talk about the fourth kind of relationship, which I describe as a conscious partnership, although I've been referring to the same thing more recently as an intimate marriage, because I feel like that conveys what I'm talking about more conscious partnership. It's an honest description, but it can sound a little more intellectual than I mean it to be. In an intimate marriage, there's plenty of intellect, but there's also plenty of other kinds of connection as well.
0: Nice. I love that.
1: And it can be helpful to just know what kind of relationship you have because, at a minimum, it can guide you in whom to learn from to improve things. If you're in a toxic relationship, then a lot of what we've shared is actually not relevant because it's not just that it doesn't feel safe to bring things up authentically, it's that it actually isn't safe. And so it's important to be clear about that. And it's also important to be clear that even when it feels like it's not safe, it actually is safe if you're in a toleration relationship to be able to share more of who you are. Because one of my favorite hobbies, I'll say, is hearing from couples who take just a little bit of risk in sharing more authentically about their thoughts, feelings, desires, and internal experience. And then they end up having more fulfilling sex and it's a mystery to them. You know, I just, I told her about this thing that for years I thought she was going to be upset about, not even related to sex, like maybe related to to a financial expense that he had a little shame about. But if he tells it in a way that is vulnerable, authentic and responsible, suddenly... There's just a little more spark flying because what was formerly a kind of emotional wall because he felt protective of himself. It resolves and then erotic energy flows.
0: That's right. I love that description about maybe having a little shame over something and so we're unwilling to share it. I think that there are also physical cues that people are not aware of that they're either sending off or they're detecting from their partner that creates a wall, right? It creates this barrier. When I'm, when I'm keeping something hidden, I'm not being authentic about some feeling or thought that I've had, I may look away. I may not keep eye contact as long as I normally would. I may actually turn my body away from my partner. Sending these cues that my partner picks up on on, and it creates this little wedge unknowingly. But then like you described, if I could just let that go, take that risk, be courageous in making sure that I'm truthfully open and authentic with my partner, that is going to transfer to how we feel about each other in every aspect of our relationship, sexually, emotionally, relationally.
1: It's for sure all
0: intertwined.
1: For me personally, when we have a phase where maybe we haven't been having sex for a little longer than made sense to me, the first thing that I've learned out of my own teaching and the things that I've learned from clients and trainings and my own experience, I've learned that as soon as I have that thought, the very next thing I do is ask myself, is there something I haven't been saying?
0: Mm, that's wise. And yeah.
1: honestly, most of the time, the answer is yes. And on the rare occasion when the answer is no, I will then turn to my husband and say, is there anything that you haven't shared with me that maybe it would be good to?"
0: Yeah. Something you're holding back about.
1: Yeah. And I want to emphasize there's no accusatory tone. I'm not even, this is not me thinking, oh, there's something happened. No, it's just... <laughs> I know that if the erotic energy isn't flowing, something is blocking it. And if I haven't found that in myself, then I ask him. And once I had this experience, it really taught me a lot because I said to him, is there anything that that maybe you haven't been saying to me? And so he took a moment. And often if he does that, he'll say, no, I don't think so. He's a pretty straightforward, wonderful man. But he said, yes, actually. And at first I got nervous, (laughs) but then he went on to tell me about this challenge. He was navigating with a colleague at work that really was taking up a lot of his mental bandwidth, but he hasn't, hadn't told me anything about it. It had absolutely nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with our marriage, but it was just taking up mental bandwidth. And so if I had initiated something and he, like, I might've taken something personally that a hundred percent had nothing to do with me. And actually, once he told me about it, the situation didn't change at all. It was a Wednesday evening. Nothing, he wasn't at work. Nothing changed. But once he told me about it, sure enough, we just felt more connected and
0: yeah. things you were know, sitting there. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if couples had kind of that understanding that you've just described where we could say, for whatever reason, I'm not feeling as much desire as I normally do. What's, first of all, let's take an inventory. What's going on in my life? Mm -hmm. And once I clear out all of those things, what's going on in my partner's life? And so when we ask each other, hey, is there something that's askew? Uh, Because I'm noticing that there's a little wedge or a little distance between us. If we could do that, my goodness, I think that would revolutionize so many marriages, just that simple practice.
1: Yes. And since it's you and me speaking Let's be really honest that this is only possible when the individual has done the work and become mindful and self-aware, yeah. because the way that you and I are talking about it, it's beautiful. I'm loving the kind of kindred attitudes we have, and we're not speaking out of reactivity or talking about speaking out of reactivity. And the reality is when my husband and I first got married, if I had said some of this to him just right off the bat, it would have sounded accusatory or resentful or like all of what's unworked through in my own soul would color what now is a very clean, clear, Mm -hmm. authentic, unadulterated question. And so I do just want to emphasize that, that yes, it would be amazing for this to be the norm among couples. Yeah. It would be so good for those relationships, for the people participating in them, for any children. And honestly, in my opinion, I think it improves everything in the whole world because if you can connect with your spouse in this way, The capacity for authentic connection with others, I don't mean sexually, but just to be able to listen and express yourself with more precision and authenticity is so far enhanced that I think most of the world's problems would either be solved or would be more, would either resolve or would be more readily solved. Even something like climate change, that when we can connect with other human beings with the depth and authenticity that really gets fostered in our marriages or committed relationships. It's just such a massive win 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 for the individual and the couple and the family and the community and right. all of society but that is contingent on the individual being willing to be more self-aware and explore what needs exploring to be more yeah. authentic. It's not just go ask your husband if he's not telling you something. It's
0: <laughs> right. It's and In fact, like it's more journal than journal
1: a little bit, pray, yes. you know, explore what's actually happening inside you so that you can let go of whatever isn't real.
0: Yeah, because this really is, this is a lifelong process that we're actually describing. It's a great practice. It may go awry in a whole, you know, host of spots. It's kind of this upward spiral that, you know, we first of all, look at ourselves, kind of become more aware, curious about what it is we might be less open about, what we don't have clarity about, our own feelings, our own thought process, but then include our spouse in that. And maybe there's some misunderstandings. I always like to say to my classes, repair is the most important part of communication. I may think that I'm communicating something, but then when I see my my husband's (laughs) horrified face, I'm like, oh, that's not what I meant, clearly. And so I go back and I'm like, well, what I meant to say, or let me repair that, right? Let me go back and take another stab at getting across what was in my thoughts. And so as we go through this process, like you said, at the very beginning of the podcast, with humility and with a little bit of a sense of humor, I think we can continue moving upward and upward and gain clarity about our own feelings, our partner's feelings. And then wouldn't it be wonderful if we could extend that same pattern to our community, you know, larger areas of influence.
1: Yes, I agree with you so deeply. And while there are many couples who are not having sex after some number of decades, 49% of women 50 and older aren't having sex anymore. But for those who do, For those who go their version of the journey that you just eloquently described. I love hearing these people in their 70s talk about having the best sex life of their lives. And I have some clients and colleagues, this one couple, they've been married for 51 years, and she talks about experiencing more pleasure than she's ever experienced in her life. I had this couple that's been married for 53 years join my Facebook group, and the woman made a post saying she and her husband have always had a strong sex life and they've just had a sexual awakening and everything is so much more incredible. (laughs) So I really- love it. I really want to emphasize this because of course there are people who get married and don't have an easy time having pleasure with one another. But even for those who do, the idea is that it's going to inevitably be lost because of the monotony, because of how bodies change physiologically, whatever other beliefs we have, and especially speaking with you, who are research-based and talking to committed couples, I really want a presence that literally every single thing you and I have said on this podcast is a contribution to more and more erotic gratification pleasure, comfort with one's own body and exploring one's partners. And there's a whole world yet available. And there's no reason not to partake in it if you're willing to learn and grow in any of the ways we've spoken about.
0: Yeah. Amen. Amen, my dear (laughs) sister. Okay, well, you know what? We didn't even get to half my questions. (laughs) We're going to have to have another chat, I think. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: Really a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Shalom.
0: That's it for this week. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sexual Mindfulness Project and subscribe to our website, shalomlevitt.com to stay up to date with the latest information on sexual mindfulness. Thanks for listening.